Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Brad Lorge, who sold his enterprise SaaS company, Premonition, for $20.5 million. But before we get there, a quick word from today's sponsor of the podcast, Scribe Media. You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector. And so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Barua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company, and made him a healthy eight-figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second-in-command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now, you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second in command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you. When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today. Also, as you're going to hear, Brad today stated that he practices servant leadership. And for those of you unfamiliar with this, I've linked a great Forbes article on the difference between traditional leadership and servant leadership, which you can find in the show notes section over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Brad Lord, who founded, as I mentioned, Premonition. Now, Premonition is a company that provides a technology solution to streamline delivery and transportation for businesses. Now, Brad built this business up to $1.8 million in annual recurring revenue, ARR, before selling it in 2022 to ship it in a deal valued at over 11 times revenue. But as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things I want you to look out for. I want you to look out for the distinction between ARR and ACV and how they impact the acquisition process. I want you to look out for the strategy Brad used for identifying and approaching strategic acquirers. Effective techniques for engaging with acquirers and negotiating a deal without appearing overly eager. 
and a unique and proven approach for accelerating the acquisition process. Here to share with you the full story is Brad Lorge. Enjoy. Brad Lorge, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Tell me about Premonition. You started as a charity. Walk me back to the very early days of this company. Yeah, uh, we did start as a charity. Um, uh, myself, my co-founders, Matthew and Kenneth, um, uh, uh, we're actually just finishing up our university degrees. And we found this project that we wanted to uh, uh, sink a little bit of time into in the food banking space. Um, we saw that there were uh, all of these local charities that um, had donations being offered to them. But logistically, they just couldn't pick it up. And as we kind of dug into it deeper and deeper, uh, the charities we were working with were saying, well, actually, if we were able to collect all the donations that were being offered to us every day, we would be able to meet all the demand we're seeing in the community. Uh, but hmm. there's, there's a problem of logistics. And so we were pretty fresh. Um, and we thought computers could save the world and this looked like an opportunity for them to do so. Uh, and we got to work and um, we started with the, I guess, the point of view that this must be a solved problem. Coordinating logistics, you know, having all the variables of rain affecting demand and vehicle availability and real-time rounding, this must exist. And at some level, it, it kind of did an industry, but not in an on-demand sense or in an on-demand sense, not in the sense of kind of- Okay, I'm going to real- pause you there because I, I just want to make sure I'm getting the initial founding idea correctly. So you, you had a food bank who had people that were desperate and needed to be fed. There was lots of food in the community. Restaurants had stuff, uh, supermarkets, grocery stores. They all had food, but it was a matter of getting the the food that was about to spoil these restaurants and grocery stores to the food bank. That was the exactly. the food bank didn't have a, a whole fleet of trucks that he'll pick up stuff on demand. And it was how do we get the, the food to the food bank? Exactly right. And, and yeah, the uh, food banks had all these volunteers who would have been happy to help. But you know, try coordinating a thousand people every night and responding to this. Uh, uh, you know, this supermarket has food today, but not tomorrow. It's raining in this town, so there's more demand for food in the food banks. We need to redirect. Um, you know, that coordination effort was beyond the resources of the, the, the food banks we were working with. So huge issue. And so you're thinking, you're thinking technologically speaking or technology speaking, that if you could Uber the food from the supermarket to the food bank, you are effectively going to solve the problem. But Uber ex- existed in, in Sydney, I understand, right? Not, it, not it when we started. Not when we started. I actually... Um, yeah, when we, I think they might've had like Uber black and you could rent registered hire cars or something, but really it, it, yeah, it was just starting. And I, I remember taking a trip to the States and seeing Uber X for the first time. And we were so excited because we thought, aha, this like idea of computers telling people where to drive and all that, everyone's going to get it now. Like this is, this is it being used in the wild. And before then, you know, telling people that the, the their mobile phone was going to be directing them. Uh, to do all these logistics pickups and things like that. It just was a foreign concept to people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so get me back into the story. So you've got the the, the problem is clear. How did you guys conceive a solution to it? So at first we thought, well, you know, the major logistics organizations, the kind of UPSs and 
DHLs of the world or in the, the context of Australia, the Australia Posts, the uh, Toll, TNT, um, they must have software that can do this in real time. And they must have something that can can do this. So we, we um, were very luckily supported by our university, the University of New South Wales, and an organisation that was called NICTA at the time. It's now part of the CSIRO, which is our premier research organisation. But they incubated us, um, put us in a space with a whole lot of top minds in optimization, and pretty quickly working with them, we came to understand that this was not a sole problem. In fact, to this day, most major logistics businesses cannot do real-time redirection of their fleet. They cannot do real-time optimization. And but the but the but the food bank doesn't have a fleet. Who's the fleet in the case of the food bank? They've got uh, generally a small fleet and then volunteers. And the idea was to okay. enable someone like you and me with a bit of spare time in a car um, to sign on and help solve that problem for them. Got it. And you got incubated. I was doing my research before. I saw there was a, a seed round. Premonition did a seed round in 2015. I'm assuming that is this incubator that took a small piece of equity in return for their advice. Is that? Am I getting that right? Or was there uh, something yeah, different? Yeah, no, it, so it, 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 um, that came a little bit after our founding. So... Uh, or at least the food bank phase. So actually, uh, NICTA and UNSW asked for nothing. Um, hmm. uh, you know, there was just uh, blanket support for us as, as, as students and, and for the idea. I think people became quite passionate about it, um, which was fantastic. We wouldn't have gotten anywhere without kind of the kindness of strangers. Um, and so we went through that phase, but very quickly realized that the scale of what we were attempting to do and the R&D required was not within the means of charity. Um, you know, the organizations we were working with couldn't fund speculative research into optimization. Um, they, the, the universities were phenomenally supportive, but this was, this was a serious project. Um, and that, that's where we realized that really to have this vision come true, we needed to think differently. And um, uh, we went to, after that point and in 2015, um, we founded Premonition, which was a social enterprise, with the goal being that we would build the technology that we thought must have already existed, um, but also make it, and make it available to commercial fleets, but also make it available at no cost to not-for-profits. Interesting. So where does it go from there? You've got this business now started. Did you, like, how did you get it financed? So the, um, <laughs> the very uh, uh, start involved a few days where we found this anchor customer who um, we met in the uh, food banking world. Um, they were a commercial fleet that had been supporting food bank. And uh, they said they'd love to have the technology enabled for their fleet. It was a business called Crossmark. And so, you know, they, they knew we were pretty fresh and, um, they agreed to a, an initial deposit, which is about a quarter of a million dollars, which for us as students was like, oh, wow, like, that's amazing. We've made it. Um, but we had, I remember we had to put our business number into the contract um, that, that uh, uh, Crossmark was going to sign. And we went to our accountants and we said, look, we need this business number. And they said, well, it's going to be, you know, $15,000, $20,000 to found it up, found it and set up all the structures and things like that. And we didn't have that money. So we said, could you give us seven days? And I said, yes. Uh, so we founded it. We hand wrote the business number into the contract. 
we signed, we got the deposit check, and we paid with a day to spare. Uh, and, and premonition was off. Wow, what a great what a great story. And so I want to be clear as to what premonition offered back in those days. So so when you say you have this company crossmark with a fleet, they wanted to optimize that fleet. So they wanted to optimize the uh, the volume of deliveries it could do based on the number of delivery vehicles it had maximize the, effectively the efficiency of that fleet. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you're always looking in optimization. Uh, you're always looking to balance things. You're looking to balance efficiency with robustness, uh, customer service and ability to respond with total cost. Um, you're looking at driver fairness. That's something we learned a lot about where you want to make sure, depending on how you pay your drivers, that uh, everyone's getting paid fairly and getting a fair opportunity to work, even if it's not the total maximum, most efficient thing. So there's a lot of real world problems um, and very nuanced interacting problems that come into optimization. And that's really- And so was this a custom piece of software just for Crossmark? Like, were you developing a custom optimization? Like, were you effectively a consulting company at this point? There, there were moments in the business's history where we were close, you know, we were doing consulting type work, but not this one. Um, the optimizer we built for Crossmark um, was in the image of what we thought uh, needed to exist for the rest of the industry. And so that became the core IP that look, call it version one, there's a version two and a version three that have existed. Um, but that really is the kind of predecessor to um, uh, the optimizer we sell today as a SaaS platform. And did you have the foresight at the time to to negotiate the IP rights so that Crossmark didn't claim that they owned it based on the original 250k deposit, like did you did you think all that stuff through? I mean, you guys were young. I imagine you, that was probably new information. Yeah, a lot of it was new. Um, we had a really great um, uh, uh, coach, Frank, at, from UNSW, who was part of their IP team, and uh, we had a family lawyer a guy named Lyle who has just been amazing and was with us on the whole journey. Um, and they sat us down and read us the riot act on making sure that we negotiated that. And thank goodness they did. Because, yeah, since then, we've obviously learned how to structure deals. But at the time, um, you know, anything could have happened there. Got it. I have to ask, before we move to present day, did you ever deploy the software for the food bank? Yeah, so we worked with uh, Food Bank Australia on their COVID response in the end. That, that's when the software was ready and, and they were ready. Um, it was a phenomenal project that got meals to frontline workers, uh, nurses, hmm. uh, 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 firefighters, things like that, um, during those early and pretty scary days of COVID. Um, we also ended up working with a great group called the Bread and Butter Project. And uh, uh, they distribute uh, baked goods all across Sydney and increasingly across Australia. Uh, and they you know, provide an opportunity to train bakers um, from disadvantaged backgrounds, and they put all the profits into community development. So an amazing organization. Um, we'd always love to do more uh, in the not-for-profit space. And you know, if any of the listeners are connected to a great charity, reach out. Is this uh, philanthropic, Ben, something you and Matthew and, and Kenneth, your co-founding team, all share a passion for? Or are you more um, the, the sort of leader in this, uh, in this vein? No, look, I, I think that's uh, uh, definitely a value we all share. 
And in fact, I think the core team, I mean, most of our team, I think the average tenure now is seven years and, you know, we've, we've all yeah, six and a half and we've only been around for about eight. Um, you know, the, the, the core team uh, that came around this business came around it for value first, profit second. Um, that helped us. You know, that helped us a lot over the course of the business. I think everyone uh, entered with the idea of the purpose of what we were doing uh, first. And when we hit really rough times, um, that, that kind of steered us through. So I, I wish I could claim that, but I, you know, I can't. That, that's, a, that's a whole team effort. Mm. You mentioned rough times. What was the, you, you were in business for six years before the ship at acquisition. What was the, the, the low point? Like what was the, the near death experience? Describe what the, the lowest point was in the business journey. Look, we had a few, um, uh, you know, fundamentally our business is enterprise SaaS, and in hindsight, don't do that. Um, you know, that's a, that's a difficult business model. Yeah. Why do you say that? Enterprise SaaS, particularly in a region like Australia, is, is really challenging because the sales cycles are extraordinarily long. The deal complexity is really high. You, you end up with a lot of bespoke requirements on every deal. Even, you know, even today, we're down to 10% bespoke rather than 70% bespoke, which is where we started. Um, so that's really hard. And your addressable market is limited in, in a region like Australia. So put those factors together and it also makes funding challenging because there are not many VC funds in the region which specialize in enterprise SaaS. And we're talking about kind of the you know, minimum deal size of about a million dollars a year. Um, so, so that, that um, uh, and that, that's where we've grown to. We didn't start there, but that, that, that's you know, eventually where we found our sweet spot. Um, so, so it's a very hard business, very slow deal cycle, and you're very exposed to individual customers, particularly when you're kind of, you know, uh, uh, looking to show growth every year. So we, we had a low point, I think, um, I don't remember what year it was, but, uh, we had a really long running implementation with a key customer and I don't think we had handled it as well as. You know, I would like to have now looking back and knowing the things I know. Um, I think that customer uh, also was going through a lot of change internally and had uh, a lot of uh, things on the go that, that made it difficult for them to implement the system. Um, but there came a point where it looked like the whole project was going to fail and they were going to churn. Um, and, and, you know, as we ran the numbers and as we looked at what was in the pipeline, it, you know, it very much would have meant layoffs in the team. Um, a significant reset of our growth trajectory, and it meant failure on something that a team had been working on for over a year, and it's a small team that are purpose-driven, so, so failure hurts a lot. Um, so th that almost killed us. And naturally, How big were you at the time? Like, what, what kind of turnover did you have? How many employees, that kind of stuff? So, so we were sitting at about 1.8 ARR at that point, roughly, and yep. sitting at about 18 heads. 18 people. Yep. Got it. Okay. So about a hundred grand per employee and, and burning cash at that point, I'd imagine. Yeah. Burning, burning a bit of cash. So we were largely bootstrapped, but we, we had a, yeah, a, a little bit of angel funding and, and, uh, some strategic investors that came in to support us through that, that phase. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. How much equity did you have to give up to the angels and the uh, strategic equity guys to uh, to get through to the to the exit? So we ended up giving away about twenty percent of the business. And in retrospect, would you change anything about the way you finance the journey? Uh, I've realized hindsight's twenty twenty, and it's yeah. always easy to kind of look back and go, "Oh, we shouldn't have given money here, or we should have shit." But you know, for for the listeners who are thinking of maybe raising some money to get them to their the vision, I'd just be curious if there's anything you would do differently or or maybe have a do-over if you could change anything about the way you financed it. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the, th- I mean, at the end of the day, um, 20% is a big chunk of the business, but I think, you know, in, in the context of VC funded businesses, I think we did all right there. Um, part of, Part of how we got through to that point is we uh, often negotiated prepayments from our key customers, and you know we explained the phase of business we were in, explained um, you know very transparently that you know we are growing and, and funding's needed, and we'd say look if you know, uh, uh, you're able to prepay a year or a year and a half of um, your uh, uh, license fees, we can give that back to you in benefits, but you're also helping us grow the company and. You know, you're investing in our ability to deliver you a good product. Now, it's a little bit risky and, you know, you can't, you really have to have a, a lot of trust with yourselves and, and the, the customers you go and approach uh, in that way. But we did that a couple of times and um, that allowed us to extend our runway much further than it, uh, and, and retain more equity than we would have been able to if we hadn't uh, negotiated those deals. So I thought, well, what was the most challenging rebuttal you heard to that pitch when you're talking to customers and say, hey, if you can prepay, you know, that'll help finance it. And we're good guys here in Sydney and helping the world. And like, what was the toughest negotiating response to that that you heard? Yeah. And how did you overcome it? So, so there was kind of two. Um, one was, you know, hang on, guys, are you and, you know, you're not going to be solvent if we go with you. And fair enough. Like, <laughs> that's a... That's a, you know, you, you really, um, you, you, you're being quite vulnerable in that moment when you go through and, um, you know, then you definitely need to be able to turn up with your forecasts and your P&L and your balance sheet and just belay everyone's fears because, uh, uh, you know, you, that's the last thing you want in one of these deals is a concern that you're just going to be, you know, one of those 90% of startups that, that don't make it. Um, so, you, you know, you're trying to build confidence while asking for a payment. Um, we, luckily we were generally able to navigate that through transparency. Um, the other one, I think was probably, a uh, uh, actually a more important one in hindsight that I didn't really understand at the time, but, um, we would sometimes get a customer saying, well, if we prepay, how do we keep you accountable? And it's amazing how much trouble it can cause in a deal if a customer doesn't feel like they can hold you accountable. Um, you know, I think, I think whenever, you know, every, every project hits trouble, you know, you're trying to do anything big, it's difficult. Um, when those moments hit, uh, a customer needs to trust you as the provider. They need to trust you as individuals that you're going to uh, work with integrity and, and be honest with them. But they also need to trust that they've got recourse. And if you don't allow for that recourse to exist in a meaningful way, then you end up seeing behaviors that are not super helpful in stressful moments. Um, so so that, I think that is actually the other side, is just making sure 
that you are willing to be held accountable and give your customers recourse if, if something's not successful. Because if you don't... And how did you do that in this case? So we didn't do it well um, initially. Um, and then we hit problems and then we had customers that were very concerned and we ended up just having to really lean on you know, personal trust um, and you know, demonstrating um, goodwill. Um, but but you know, I think we could have avoided a lot of trouble if we had put in penalty clauses that you know, did something like you know, extend how much credit they had or um, potentially even you know, offer part equity in the business uh, uh, in the event that we hadn't met our commitments. Now, some risk there, and, and to be honest, there's probably some factors I'd need to think through in terms of mechanically if that would even be valuable or if that would be scary for a customer to end up owning a piece of something that had just failed. But um, I, I think we didn't do it well. Um, I would endeavor to find a way to ensure the customer had recourse if I tried to do a prepayment style structure again. Mm. At a million eight in, in ARR and 18 employees, are you starting to, along with, with Matt and Ken, think about the value of the company? I mean, you must be if you're raising money. What, like, have you got a, a sense at this point of what a company like yours is worth in the open market? Are you using any benchmarks? or? Uh, no, not at that time. Um, we actually had a few approaches um, from pretty serious international competitors of the business. Um, uh, uh, early days, like early, early days. And this was during the period of buzz of, you know, Uber's going to dominate every logistics player, uh, Amazon's coming knocking, um, who knows what Google's going to do next. Um, so there, there was a lot of uncertainty uh, with regards to how these kind of disruptive players were going to impact the transport space. Um, so that's why I think, you know, we got a lot of early interest and, and some pretty high numbers kind of being thrown around. Um, but we, we knew we weren't. When you say pretty high numbers, like what, what, like multiples of revenue, like what kind of multiples of yeah, revenue? Yeah, so I mean, would they have been at that in time? those days, you know, and we never went far enough to firm these numbers, but you know, it was pretty common to see a, a kind of a 12 X or a, uh, 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 yeah, a 13, 14 X being thrown as an opening gambit. Um, you know, we, we didn't take them too seriously. And it, just for the fact that we knew there was so much more of our kind of vision we hadn't built yet. And, and we saw a huge amount of opportunity in the space. Yeah, to be clear, it's just for my listeners, you're talking about 12, 13, 14 times revenue, correct? That's right, yeah. Well, of, of ARR. Got it. Yeah. ARR, excuse me, yeah. ARR, again, stands for Annual Recurring Revenue. And if folks listening are wondering, wow, I wonder if I can get that kind of multiple for my business. Remember, this is a SaaS company, software as a service company, and they generally trade at astronomical multiples or have done it until recent past. That's right. Uh, and so keep that in mind. <laughs> a little warning on the uh, on the back of the tin. And yeah, there's certainly there was a golden era and I'm not convinced we're in it anymore. Yeah. Why do you say that? I, I think multiples. Are, so I think generally, I mean, you know, I'm sure you've discussed the macro trends. There's probably people more qualified to comment on it. I, I also think that... Um, the uncertainty of the disruptive players has um, uh, uh, abated a little bit. I think when Uber was first rocketing through, uh, Amazon was entering our market um, and we were seeing kind of these astronomical growth of businesses like WiseTech, it's a phenomenal business. 
um, but it created a tremendous amount of uncertainty in the rest of the market. And in times of uncertainty, um, there, you know, anything that looks like it's going to contribute to um, an answer to this incoming threat will be of more strategic value. But as time passes and people become more familiar and they understand what, where they'll win and where they'll lose against those um, uh, uh, disruptive players, um, well, then it's not as strategically valuable to bring in a startup that has some promising technology and, and a little bit of growth. So I think you know, the two <laughs> factors really compound to, to uh, uh, create the conditions we're seeing today. Yeah. So let's get uh, back to the story. So we're at a million and eight in ARR, annual recurring revenue. You raise some money, uh, give up a little slice of equity to fund the the growth. How then big did you get the business before you decided to sell it? I guess big I'm looking for, like what was the ARR when you decided to, to sell? Yeah. So the annual contract value, um, uh, uh, which is, you know, uh, all of our contracts running for a full calendar year was a bit north of $3 million. Got it. And just to, for folks who may not know, including myself, the difference between annual recurring revenue and annual contract value, can you just, just distinguish between the two? Yeah. So, so um, with uh, annual recurring revenue, you're looking at what you're actually banking now. Um, but with, uh, we sometimes look at ACV and annual contract value in enterprise deals because you might have a deal that is rolling out. So it's not at its full monthly billing yet, but as that uh, uh, account hits their full billing number, their contract value, then you've got a new AR. So um, AR lags uh, annual contract value. Got it. Got it. Trailing 12 month TTM, trailing 12 month ARR will be a historical measure. Uh, and whereas contract value is a forward looking yeah. measure. Normally, to some you know, you're looking at about you know, three to six months uh, forward measure. But, but not, not, not a, but different to just you know, our projected growth, it's signed contracts that are in the process of rolling out. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. And did you also have any services revenue? Like, did you charge for implementation or was that all baked into the contract? Yeah, you know, talking about being green, we didn't know how to do that initially. Um, <laughs> you know, because we'd, we'd always been consumers and, and interacted with consumer SaaS. And so it just didn't occur to us that we should be charging for that. Um, uh, and again, talking about accountability. Like if you're not charging for those services, which are pretty immense in the initial phase of a project, then how does someone not pay you if you haven't done the right work? So, um, yeah, so we, we've started to do that. That that only ended up making up about 10% of our revenue. Um, Got it. But uh, uh, you know, it's a significant amount of the energy of the business was was in services. I'd imagine. I'd imagine. But once you get one of these implementations in successfully, I can imagine these customers are sticky, really sticky. Like what was your annual churn rate, revenue or logo churn rate, whatever, whatever you, you were reporting. No. You're not, you're shaking your head on, right. if you're watching on YouTube, you're like, in other words, none. Yeah, we look, we, we, we certainly lost accounts, um, but never once they went live. Um, you know, it, it, wow. it's, um, uh, and, and, you know, for context, the systems we were replacing, if they weren't made of paper, they were older than I am. Um, so it is, it's a very sticky, um, uh, uh, very sticky customer base. Um, 
our kind of gross margin, so kind of our, our revenue minus the direct costs into providing the software was over 80%. Um, but then we still still ran a loss because we were investing in the R&D and the, the, the general business. So um, we never turned a profit. And you had, you had, I think I read somewhere you had 21 employees at this stage of the game. Yeah, so um, we had kind of 25 people, but 21 uh, full-time equivalents. Yeah, and I'd imagine some of those employees are fairly expensive data modelers and analytics people and obviously coders and so forth. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a uh, it's a complex kind of problem to tackle. You know, again, some, something of a learning in there. Um, I think yeah. we were a group of engineers, so we went for the hardest engineering problem. Um, yeah, and that that was expensive and slow. Um, the uh, we also had you know phenomenal people ops. You know, uh, 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 capability. I think uh, something I'm really proud of. Uh, Amanda Smith was our um, head of people ops and just did a phenomenal job promoting a, 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 a an engaged and transparent culture within the business and and supporting individuals. Um, uh, uh, you know, we had a, a gentleman named Trevor Goodman who's you know, was a previously a VP at DHL and you know stepped in to run our finances um, on a part time basis, but but really helped us grow the business. So really phenomenal. Amazing. Amazing. So you're th- you're three million in ARR, or excuse me, annual contract va- value ACV. Twenty five people. I'd imagine you're burning some cash still. And I'm, the reason I'm asking this is I'm trying to get a sense of what triggered the sale. I'm imagining if if I'm reading between the lines, and again, you tell me where I'm getting it wrong. But at at that stage, you're probably at a bit of an inflection point. Like we've either got to go raise more money. Or sell? It, w- am I getting that right? Were, were you at that sort of fork in the road? Or yeah, that, that's exactly it. Um, you know, we uh, uh, so we had some experimentation with uh, selling into Europe. We actually had a guy named Frank Smose who was on the ground there, and just a phenomenal, well-connected, yeah, brilliant guy. Like the the ideal person to have as your um, kind of lone ranger in a new region. And, you know, brought great opportunities with national postal organizations to us. We're having conversations once a week with senior people, but they all wanted a presence on the ground and, and we couldn't fund that. Um, but we also knew that the Australian market for uh, logistics is, is limited and it's slow and we weren't going to be able to sustain our growth rate um, if, if we didn't uh, raise the capital and make the investments needed uh, to grow the business. And so really we, we looked at fundraising. We spoke to some of the Australian venture capital funders, um, spoke to a little bit of private equity. Um, there was some interest, but you know, I think enterprise S was not in anybody's portfolio mandate. Um, you know, we we were we looked different to a marketplace or a consumer SaaS product or even a B2B kind of SaaS product as distinguished from the B2E, which is what we were enterprise sales. Um, so as we stared into each of those pieces, we slowly landed on a belief that, you know, either merging with another business or integral being acquired by a business was the best path, um, for our shareholders to get some value in the short term, but, but really to see the business succeed in the way we believed it could. And and take me inside the the boardroom or the pub or where you 
and and Matt and Ken had that conversation. Yeah. Was was everybody unanimous? Was there was there sort of a view among some people that hey, we should continue to go it alone, or was everybody landed at the same spot? We didn't have a blue over it. Um, or we didn't. We didn't. There wasn't conflict. Um, you know, no, what did you say? Aussies have the best yeah. expressions. You didn't have a blue over it. We didn't have a blue. Um, that means, uh, <laughs> what does that mean? That's uh, a good question. Um, uh, yeah, we, we, well, look, no, no one shouted. Um, okay. The, uh, uh, I think the path became clear to us all at a similar time as we were reporting back on the feedback we were getting from the VC space, but also, um, we had known for a long time that we were limited, uh, we, we knew we could capture more of the market with the right investment, and we'd known that for some time. Um, we were having to turn opportunities away. We were we we ended up turning off our marketing because um, we were we were saturated. But but we kind of had this chicken and egg problem where you know we needed to invest to hit the next level of scale, and um, uh, uh, so so we were all on the same page. Um, we had a great board. Um, uh, at this point, I had a co CEO TNT Mac who was actually the former chief technology officer from Australia Post, the biggest logistics players in Australia. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we, we over a few, call it three different meetings, um, you know, explored the options, uh, decided it was worth investigating merger or, or acquisition. Um, and then by the third meeting, I think everyone was aligned that uh, this was worth pursuing. And, and, and so we kicked off that process. And what was that like? Tell me about the the first step proactively you took to market the business for sale. Yeah. Um, so now, mind you, this is during COVID, and no one was allowed out of their houses. And uh, you know, Australia had a pretty pretty different uh, COVID, I think, to the rest of the world. Um, so we try living in Toronto, Canada. I, I'm sure we trump you in terms of lockdown longevity and, and rigor. But anyway, we'll have that debated another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say it was an interesting time to be doing something that requires a lot of face-to-face conversations normally and a lot of trust. I um, bet. So we, um, the first thing we did was look at all of the businesses in our space uh, that were doing well, but also were in a similar position, weren't quite hitting that. Um, kind of you know, inflection point of growth, but but had all the potential there, um, and we ended up. Uh, uh, yeah, Australia is actually a pretty small place, so we we spoke to the founders of a few really really great businesses um, that uh, uh, we were. You know, we had a, a thesis that said if we put these two businesses together um, and we streamline what they're focused on, uh, then there's an opportunity to break out of. Australia or um, really capture a very valuable part of this market. Um, with a, Was it the same thesis for all of the companies you explored? No, we had, um, we had slightly different uh, uh, approaches. We had you know, one firm that had a really strong presence in what we would call kind of merchant services. So they work with retailers um, directly, whereas we work more with the logistics providers directly. Um, and they saw an opportunity to kind of offer a one-stop shop uh, to these retailers for their own fleets, for um, you know, outsource service providers, for click and collect and all kinds of interesting things there. So um, that firm was very much uh, uh, us offering something very new to the merchant world. 
Um, another firm uh, uh, was a more traditionally in our space, and they were they were what you would call a transport management system. So they were connected with all the big uh, 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 shipping companies who are sending containers, not parcels, um, and they drop them into a you know a country somewhere in the world, and they'd need to get what was in that container to uh, uh, the, the recipient and sometimes drag that down into parcels and send it. And so a much more traditional business software play, um, much much less disruptive, but but certainly more aligned to where, where we were. And there were a few others that, but, but you know, those, those ended up becoming front runners for us outside of Shipit who ended up acquiring us. Yeah, I want to get to Shipit in a minute, but how many companies, because I think our, our listeners would really benefit from understanding how to identify the strategic acquirers, potential strategic acquirers for a company. And you've done a great job of illustrating two theses, both different reasons to buy your business, but both strategic for their own reason. How many strategic companies did you have on your short list of, of a, whether you thought there was a real you know, strategic fit? So we started with a list of about 20 um, that were you know, credible in our eyes. You know, you, you get the list of a thousand firms in the sector and everyone writes down every business they know and you look at all of them. And that, But we came to about 20 that were credible. Um, and then we started to have conversations with those businesses and identify if there was appetite, if there was capacity, um, uh, and, and how did you how did you develop the list of twenty? Again, was that did you outsource that to an M and A firm, a consulting firm, or did did you and Matt and Ken and T develop the list of twenty yourselves? Yeah, we the the internal team developed that list um, with the support of our board, with uh, our kind of core team. We had um, uh, a you know, director of customer Nicholas, who was phenomenally helpful in that effort as well. Um, and between us, we sifted through the list and identified, you know, kind of from our point of view, the, the 20 that we could create a credible story about the strategic fit. Um, and are you telling your people, you know, I, I keep rattling around in the back of my mind is just your retention rate of your people, the fact that they're, you're a purpose-driven organization, that it's not just you who has this philanthropic bent, it's the entire team. And so I'm in my mind going, how is this guy managing this with his people, of which he's got 25? Uh, because the, the classic sort of rule of thumb is don't tell your people anything, right? And, and I'm imagining if you're involving Nicholas in the discussion, maybe Amanda, others, you, you're having to let them in on the secret a little bit. What, what have you told your team at this point? Yeah, um, I remember having those chats with some advisors I had um, you know, uh, uh, and the classic advice. And I think there's real truth to it. You know, don't, don't distract your people um, with another kind of front to uh, worry about. You know, you've got um, uh, uh, already a hard enough job as a member of a small team like this. Um, do you really need to be going through the ups and downs of fundraising? Um, but... In our case, we, we chose, I think, a reasonably high degree of transparency. Um, we uh, took the view that our guys are just, you know, too, uh, 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 too aware. You know, I think they can read our faces particularly well and um, trying to hide something like that or, or operate in secret, I think, was always just going to create angst. 
um, and, and doubt about the, the future of the business and, and how well they would be engaged and consulted in any decision. Um, so we, we just, we took the view that with all the risks of distraction, um, it, it was better to be clear with everyone about what we were attempting to do, how it was going, how uncertain we were or, or confident we were at any point in time. Um, but we, we wouldn't necessarily go through the finer details of exactly who we were talking to or exactly um, what the, the deal roadblocks were. We would just give a and how did you, sentiment. How did you characterize it to your team? Because I, I think if you plotted the, the potential uh, responses or positioning, I should say, you, you know, on one side of the equation, you've got, you know, look, Matt and Ken and I are going shopping for the highest bidder. We're, we're, you know, we've got one foot in Tahiti. We're heading, we're heading to the beach and, and you guys are going to be left holding the bag. I'm guessing that's not the way you characterize it. Whereas the other end of the spectrum is, hey, you know, it's natural for a business to, as it reaches these sort of stages of growth, to look for outside funding at times. And so we're going through a, you know, a, a phase where we're looking at maybe uh, bringing on some extra investors. Which sounds very benign, but is not necessarily the most truthful response that you could give. So, where did you land on that on that spectrum? Yeah. Um, so we, we landed on, and and uh, yeah, I have to credit T's leadership as well through this period. I think he um, was a very steady hand in in, in this conversation. Um, the whole team knew we needed funding to grow. It was just it was apparent to everyone in every function that they were getting stretched, um, and that they could all see we were losing opportunities. Um, as a result of that. So there was no surprise when we went to them and said, look, guys, we've had a you know, very, very, uh, uh, I guess, a very solid run at identifying the best way for us to secure that funding, secure um, uh, the growth of the business and the uh, capacity for us to actually deliver on the mission that everyone signed up for. Um, and as a result, we're, we're going down the path of identifying potential mergers or ac an acquirer um, for the business. Uh, and yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty that that created and a lot of questions. But um, we, at that point, could start meeting um, up again. And we did a lot. And again, T's leadership, Amanda's leadership, but the whole, my whole leadership team, including my co-founders, um, were very good about letting difficult questions uh, uh, be asked in public um, and you know, allowing for kind of uh, uh, answers to sink in over time and to just be consistent and be aligned in, in, in our position as to why we thought this was the best for our people, best for our customers and, and best for our product. And did the people share in, in, in any sort of economic upside to a sale? Like, did they have stock options? Obviously, I'm sure T did, but did, but did the sort of rank and file employee have some sort of uh, stock options or uh, phantom equity or something that would be financially rewarding for them if there was an acquisition? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we might have been green when we started this thing and we made plenty of mistakes. The one thing I think we got right is uh, – from the day the business was founded, 10% of the company was set aside as a pool for employees, um, and we ended up growing that a little bit. Um, so we, we would kind of take the view that we, we only wanted to work with co-owners. Um, uh, we, we weren't interested in people kind of turning up for uh, 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 you know, 
just a, a consulting gig or something like that. We wanted we wanted a, a bunch of co-owners making decisions together in the business. How do you, I mean, when you've got 10 employees and you've got 10%, it's easy to give everybody a percentage of the business. How do you manage that as you grow? Because effectively, if the, if the nut is 10%, and I acknowledge that it grew a little bit over time, the more people you add, the more diluted the one the previous shareholders become. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that dilution with employees who I'm assuming aren't necessarily um, you know, finance experts, probably don't understand some of the nuances of it? Like, how did you choose to sort of help educate them about what it meant that you were bringing on a team member that the pool wasn't growing commensurate with the the new team member that you would actually be diluted. Yeah. So um, with the way we set up that particular program and um, there were, there were mistakes in that program that administratively, you know, still, still cause headaches. Um, but the, uh, the system worked on a, it effectively was designed to last five years. Um, and then we topped it up and really it weighted the early contributions a little bit higher and the later contributions a little bit lower with the theory being the business will be worth more and be more stable and risk risk is reduced there. So, um, you know, the, the staff who really took the risk and went through the kind of the hardest periods of the business um, ended up with uh, a bit more proportionately of a chunk than, than a new employee would get. This is always a, a difficult thing um, you know, as with any sort of RAM or comp or anything in a small business. I mean, it's just, it is, uh, always fraught. Um, so I think it's it's a you know, as much as you can rely on rules, and as much as you can act consistently over time, um, the less conflict you're going to get. I don't think you can avoid it completely. I think you know there's there's always going to be a moment where something potentially is unfair and it happens, and someone gets more than reasonably they should have. And uh, in that moment, I, I'd I'd favour just consistency and structure. Um, as much as possible, rather than you know, trying to uh, uh, intervene in every single kind of problem that comes up. Because on average, the system was designed well and, and worked well and rewarded people well. Yeah, yeah, got it. So let's get back. So you've got these 20 credible strategic fit companies that the internal team has identified. Where does it go from there? So we, we divvied them up. We said, who's got relationships? Um, and you know, we also have the cold call list. Um, and we started having conversations. So, uh, we had either talked to contacts we knew or we'd reach straight through to a, um, corporate dev team, um, or we would go to a partner manager and have a conversation about where we were at. Um, pretty quickly that list starts to shrink. Um, you know, some acquirers, uh, uh, were reeling from potential acquirers or potential merger, um, targets were reeling from COVID. Some were getting unbelievably boosted by COVID in a way that wasn't going to be sustainable. And they, they just, you know, they weren't going to credibly be a long-term home for us. And others, you know, just looked at the business and looked at where they were and what they're acquiring and said, yeah, guys, it's probably not right for, for us at this stage. And so- the- How did you approach them? Like, what were the words you used? Did you words use words like, we're looking at maybe building a strategic partnership or a partnership? Did you use the words merger? Be curious to know what words you used in the email to approach these guys. Yeah. Um, so where, where we had an existing relationship, 
um, I think you know the, the conversation looks something like, look, we're looking at our long-term growth and wanted to see if there might be some strategic advantage to uh, looking at our businesses uh, in concert um, or, or having a conversation about whether or not there might be a fit bet uh, between our two businesses and we might be able to put a stronger offer to market um, by by uh, uh, collaborating or partnering or, or potentially merging. And we'd always kind of you know list the options out. Um, for the bigger players, it certainly um, starts with a conversation about partnership because that's that's really where you can have the full conversation about the strategic value of the businesses. Um, and then you, you, know, you would tend to then pivot from there and say, well, look, if, if um, you know, we could be so strategically advantageous for your customers, would you be interested in potentially taking a stake or, or, or looking at some sort of um, acquisition uh, uh, to support this partnership? And, and so, you know, you get through those conversations pretty quickly. Um, and we were down to you know, kind of a, a short list of kind of three really uh, interesting options, which Shippet wasn't on, by the way. Um, and uh, uh, then we had a, a you know, kind of two to three that were possible, but but you know down our preference list. So you've got three options, three solid options, three compelling options. Have you gotten to the stage at this point where they put together some preliminary numbers in the form of a letter of intent, or have you started to talk about value or deal structure yet at this point? Yeah, so we we got with uh, 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 two of the three, we got to. Um, uh, the point of yeah, discussing deal structure, running models, looking at, in the case of merger, you know, relative ownership and uh, uh, relative valuations of the business in the case of acquisition, um, you know, uh, multiples on revenue and, and kind of the... Uh, and so what uh, multiples have, are you hearing at this point, Brett? Like, what, are, well, are you back in this 12 and 14 times revenue number or you, what are you hearing? So we weren't hearing that back then. And um, I, I have to say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, uh, venture to guess what the numbers are like now. I, I think the market's still all over the shop. There's still good deals happening, um, but the vast majority of what I've been seeing is you know, dramatic reductions from 10x. Like, you know, then I think, I mean, we were sitting at about a 7x um, when when we exited. Um, the you know, just about, um, but. Uh, uh, and I, I think that was middle of the road for that time. Um, I think it's lower now. And I think, you know, if we were trying to sell or raise today, and I think, you know, I'm sure it'll get better soon, but um, I don't think we'd see that multiple just based on, on, on the businesses <laughs> I've seen. Yeah. The three options that you're looking at are around the seven X number at this point. Yeah. Plus or minus. Yeah. We were all, we were, all of them were within a reasonable band there. Yeah. And, and are you driving that? Are you sort of saying, look guys, for us to do a deal, we, we sort of need to see a, a seven or were they like, it's surprising that all three would, would triangulate around the same number if there wasn't some influence from you. Did, did you sort of, tip your hat as to what you were expecting at all? Yeah, I mean, we walked in with um, uh, so, you know, a benchmark study that someone had done um, that showed that we should be getting an 11X 
Um, <laughs> you know, we, we ran all of those numbers through and put it on the table. And uh, not everyone took that too seriously. Um, I, I think in reality, uh, you know, we knew the range at which um, our board would be comfortable approving a deal. And we knew the range in which we thought it would be fair value for our shareholders and um, for for um, our acquirer as well. We didn't, you know, we didn't want to put a deal through that, you know, I guess, didn't deliver value in the long term for an acquirer. I mean, I get, I get that, and I'm wondering, you know, you know, when you sell a home, there's a school of thought that says never tell your real estate agent what you'll accept because miraculously they somehow, although they say they never do, kind of tip the buyer to that. They got to get to at yeah. least this number, and you know, they they sort of tip that. Did did you sort of? I guess where I'm going with this is, did you lead, did you and your board and everybody felt, you know, like seven's fair, but did you sort of share that with the potential acquirers either overtly or did you intimate it in some level? I'm, I'm sure they could pick up um, that that's where our comfort zone was, but it was never our strategy to walk out and say, here's our number. Um, yeah. Yeah, but they they kind of might might have guessed a little bit. Yeah, that that's that's right. And and look, I mean, the the other uh, uh, piece to look at is it, it certainly was the case that there were quite a few Australian centric benchmarking studies that sat businesses of our profile between six and eight over that period. And so, you know, we, we're in we're in a very narrow band there um, uh, that uh, 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 you know would be supporting the um, uh, the valuation that you know, our well. That would be supporting what the advisors of our acquirers would be saying to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So you've got these uh, three. You've got fair sounds like offers on the table. Where does it go from there? Because at some point, ship it hasn't even reared its head yet. So yeah. where, where does this uh, take us? Tell tell us the ship it story. Yeah. So I've known uh, Will, one of the co CEOs of Ship It, for a long time, and really respected them. I mean, we played in different spaces, but. Uh, within logistics, but uh, uh, we were both in logistics, in tech. In uh, explain what Shipit does for folks who've never heard of it. So Shipit's a phenomenal uh, business and product for merchants selling online, or or merchants that need to ship their products to their consumers. They allow you to create a multi-carrier uh, delivery network, so you can take uh, uh, the best express product from one company and the best on-demand product from another. You can look at having, uh, uh, you know, they've got a product called Smart Routing, which is kind of like um, Webjet, but for carriers where you've got multiple um, different carriers stuck together. So they, they really provide a very advanced uh, offering, but focused on e-commerce merchants, on traditional merchants sending things, creating that great customer experience and that consistent customer experience for consumers. But they didn't do a lot of work with the carriers themselves. And so that that's really where we, we call it the Trinity, the kind of the consumer, the merchant, and the carrier. And our, our old logo was the Trinity mark. Um, but they really nailed merchant and consumer, and we were you know, the the preeminent system for carriers. Excellent. And so you mentioned you'd known the founder of Shipit for a period. Yeah, so I'd known. Um, Will, one of the, the two co-founders for a long time and had a huge amount of respect for him personally, as well as the business um, 
I had known some of their staff, their chief of staff was an old friend. Um, and so, you know, funnily enough, when we approached them, it wasn't a conversation about acquisition. You know, we knew they'd done well. We knew they'd uh, uh, just secured one round and they were about to secure another, um, which has now been announced. Um, but we wanted to work with them as a customer of ours. Um, we, we thought that uh, some of the things they were working on were quite exciting. And I said, you know, uh, to Will, look, you know, if you're building um, some of the stuff I think you're building, we'd love to be involved. Um, and Will turned around and said, well, would you be open to acquisition? And that was a complete surprise to me on the call. Um, yeah, uh, it was um, it was just good timing. And, um, you know, like all, I think, good deals, there was just a natural strategic fit and no one really went looking for it. It just became suddenly obvious to everyone um, on, on you know, the call and subsequently in the, the, the meetings that followed. Um, so that's how it happened. Wow. And so how did you handle that bombshell? Because you were down the road fairly significantly with these three other firms. What, like, fill us in. What happens next? Did you say, well, Will, we got we to gotta, we gotta move fast because we've got three other deals on the table here? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, John, that was hard. Um, you know, and, and uh, we spent a lot of time as a board talking about how we do right by everyone in this process. Um, uh, we said, God, you're so nice. It makes me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, I had a very, I I had a board and co-founders that valued integrity immensely. So that was just, and that's how it was done. Um, And we didn't want to, uh, uh, you know, especially when we're talking about strategic mergers with other startups in a similar place to us, um, we never wanted to um, put them in a position that could compromise their businesses. You know, that's other business owners. Um, so as much as we owed our, and we did owe our shareholders the best possible return, I think we secured that. Um, wherever we could, we, we wanted to make sure we didn't do damage to other businesses. Um, okay. So practically though, what did you do? Because Will has kind of dropped this bombshell, but there are these three other offers. So practically, what did you say to him? So we said, look, you know, we are interested and we are in the market. Um, but we'd need to move quickly. We're pretty far down the road on some other options. Um, so we would need to know, you know, within, you know, the next two to three weeks, what a deal could look like. Um, and to their credit, they swung into action. So, um, Shippet had just brought on board a guy named Chris Weaver, um, who I ended up, uh, working very closely with for a long period of time. And, uh, he, uh, is a really experienced um, hand when it comes to M and A, and I think that enabled the deal to happen. Um, Chris had previously worked for Wise Tech; he'd worked for Zero um, in the M and A space, and uh, he shot straight. Um, he was uh, uh, very good at guiding us through the process that that he wanted to run, and I'm very transparent about each of the steps. Um, so I think. Uh, uh, you know, that enabled us to move quickly. Um, we, him and I were able to establish trust quite quickly. Um, and uh, we got to the point where they put an offer forward that was compelling. Um, and What made it compelling? It, it, so in terms of the total figures, it, it wasn't radically different from the other deals. Um, but we, in all the deals, there was a component 
um, of the sale, which included shares in the um, uh, acquiring business. So no deal was all, there was one deal that was all cash, but that, that was a lot lower um, than uh, we thought was you know, uh, the reasonable value for the business. Um, we believed in uh, the shipper growth story the most. And so from that perspective, we thought that it would be in the best interests of our customers who showed a lot of faith in supporting our business over the years and we wanted to repay. Um, Will, um, Chris and I had sat down at one point and we ran through comparatively the premonition values and the shipper values. Um, and we talked a lot about how we got stuff done. And um, from that conversation, um, T and I were comfortable. It was the best fit for our people. Uh, and from a product perspective, I think their product and our product had the most natural um, synergy, if you want to call it that. You know, we could deliver a lot of value to the merchants they served, but likewise, we could help carriers surface um, information or, or you know, introduce new products for those merchants in a way that would be really hard to do if the two businesses weren't you know, tightly coupled. So. We ship it sort of in the 7x revenue valuation range like you guys? No, they were a bit higher. Um, just trying to remember the exact number, but they they eked past 10 um, during that period. Mm. Why were they worth more? They had... On a, on a dollar for dollar basis. They had um, just an incredible surge of growth through COVID. Uh, just an just a incredible year-on-year -year growth. Um and if you think about the four firms, and again, if I'm getting into territory you can't really speak to, I totally appreciate that. But could you just, for our listeners, I think they would benefit from hearing the proportion of equity they would likely need to roll over. So you mentioned each of the deals, these three that were valuing you guys in this kind of seven times ARR or ACV, uh, you, you were you were going to have to rule some equity. Like, give me, is it 10%? Is it 50%? Like ballpark, what were they sort of looking for? Look, I, I can't speak to the general case, but but in our case, the, the ranges were between uh, uh, 50 and 75%. Um, so, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the most kind of uh, uh, cash heavy deal was 50% of the total value of the business. Interesting. Okay. So you've got to feel super confident that that equity you're rolling is going to be worth something one day. That's right. That's right. And so the wow, easy, that's a big nut. So the easiest one, and, and you know, um, one of the firms in the mix uh, is if a business is listed um, on the stock exchange. If you've got a listed business, um, then those shares, depending on the terms of the deal, um, can be fairly liquid. Um, but ship it's not listed, um, ship it's a private business. And so it's, you know, reduced liquidity. So yeah, we had to believe in it. Um, and there were long discussions. I think the board playing their role in challenging that belief. Um, but, but in the end, I think everyone was and is very confident uh, that, that ship it's the right or was the right uh, uh, long-term uh, source of value for our shareholders. And we're getting into the weeds a little bit, but were the investors that you had, did they have the same class of shares that you had or did they have preferred stock that would entitle them to get liquid at, at this stage or did they have to roll as well? Yeah, so we, we had uh, a single share class across all shareholders, um, which is tricky and I think um, you know, increasingly it's becoming rare 
Um, but, yeah. but I think in moments like this, you know, it puts everyone, I think, in the right headspace to, to look at maximizing total value rather than, um, you know, I guess the, the kind of games that sometimes come up when you've got preferred uh, shareholders on a, on a cap table. How do you get comfortable? And, and again, I think rolling equity, in particular in, in this environment, is, is very, very common. Mm. And, and so I think a lot of our listeners will have to reconcile the fact that part of their value will be in an equity in the acquiring company. And at the same time, I think some people look at that as as just tremendous risk because they go from owning a business that they fully control, that they've got the yoke and they can decide, you know, where to fly the plane to a situation where they're a minority shareholder in a private company that they don't control. And, and they are very squeamish about that. So how did you, I'm sure you felt some of the same emotions. How did you overcome th- that trepidation from going from majority control, driving the bus to like, maybe walk us through your thinking there. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and yeah, I've, I've already shared that uh, uh, we went through a process of really in, at length assessing um, which option we believed in the most. And we, and we, are, we will, you know, there's the belief um, you know, that sounds great. And then there's the, you know, what supporting evidence do we have to build confidence in, in our beliefs? And, and we went through that. Um, but fundamentally, I, I think there's another point that you're kind of digging into there, which is the, the is like, I'll call it the ego component. You know, if you have founded a business and you have been steering the ship, it is very hard to conceive of becoming a minority shareholder. And it is hard. Um, I think... Uh, uh, for me, there was a transition in my thinking that had happened you know, a couple of years before this. And really with bringing tea on, I think was the, the ultimate kind of step in that process to stop seeing uh, the business as kind of a deeply integrated part of my personality, which in retrospect, I, you know, it was, um, to an asset and a business that I had a job in um, and I had a specific job, which was to you know, look after my shareholders and my people. Um, and I had gone through a lot of kind of personal uh, uh, mentality shifting over that period. So when it came to this decision, it was easier. But had the same scenario happened a couple of years earlier, I think I would have found it immensely difficult to kind of how did you, thank you for sharing that because Brad, I think that is a, a, a really incredible insight. What, for folks who are about to go through this process of starting to separate their own, call it ego, for lack of a better words, for, you know, their status as the owner or control of the business to, to that of an employee of a business that they happen to have some shares in it. Were there books that you read or courses or mentors that you leaned on? Like what, what was your journey like? How did you, how did you come to that separation effectively? Um, yeah, I wish, I wish there was a book I'd read and, and if you have one you recommend, I'd love to read it because um, I think it was a, it was a big moment in, in kind of my personal journey as a, as a founder. Um, the, I think fundamentally it came from, 
the understanding that I needed to shift my thinking came from my advisors. Um, I had an incredible, incredible group of advisors who um, all had decades of experience and achieved great things themselves and were very, very kind at their time. Um, and I, at some point, you know, we were having a rough period in the business where we just, everything was harder than it should have been. And, and we're having, uh, uh, you know, risk of, uh, uh, losing a key person because we'd messed something up that we shouldn't have. And a customer was finding, you know, that we weren't delivering for them. And it was a really hard period. And I, I think a few advisors at the same time turned around and said, look, this business will run better if you can separate your ego from your role and you need to spend some time doing that. And <laughs> I was like, okay, um, I don't, I, first of all, I didn't know what they were talking about. And then uh, eventually with repetition, um, I, I kind of got it. I saw me reacting to things, not in a thoughtful way as a, as a leader, but actually as kind of someone who was a little bit too wrapped up in the success of the business and feeling anxious whenever, you know, a hard decision had to be made. And so I, I, I finally agreed that maybe they had a point and then started working with them on uh, how they would view situations and, and started to be a lot more consultative in, you know, before I reacted to or made a decision or, um, uh, 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 you know, determined how I felt about a big thing. I just run it past one or two of the advisors and pretty quickly, um, I think I started to see that, you know, separate owner from operator uh, uh, kind of mentality start to build. Um, I think anything you can read on servant leadership was immensely helpful over that period in giving me a framework for what good leadership does look like. Um, and I think I, I really spent a bit of time staring into what I was doing that matched that and what I was doing that didn't match the servant leadership model. And it turns out there was a bit, a fair bit, and I appreciate the patience of everyone I worked with. Um, <laughs> and so really that was like, that was my personal leadership journey. It just so happened that that made it a lot easier to, you know, see, you know, the sale of the business is not me handing over control, but really, you know, I, I saw it as me doing my job. Uh, it was my role to make sure the business was successful. And, you know, we'd gone through a long process to determine that you know, this is what we believed would make the business most successful. How did you approach you, you? You start to work with with Will's colleague Chris at uh, Chris Weaver at Shipit, and you work through the two week period that they needed to develop to get their their offer in place. They brought you an offer that was similar to what you received from the others. How did you then approach it with the other three? Like, did a lot of founders in your spot, I think, would have said, "Okay, well." let's have a bake off and let's try to gin this offer up, play one off the other and try to try to move the number up. Did, did you attempt that? What was your approach with the other three? The, um, the other three. So, so I guess fundamentally there was a line in the sand for us and I'm not sure this is good advice. So I can just share what we, what our line in the sand was. Um, we viewed, kind of serious due diligence as the line in the sand where we weren't willing to put our smaller um, uh, uh, potential merger partners through that expense. So 
you know, there's always light due diligence as you're negotiating um, the terms and the numbers and things like that. And there's requests for our financials and, you know, validation of our contracts and things like this. But this is all light. When you're starting to dig into uh, the tax compliance with you know, every um, employee we've ever had, when you're going in depth on um, IP, uh, and, and we had a very, very robust in the end due diligence process with, um, with Shepard, uh, we weren't comfortable allowing multiple parties to incur that expense, um, just given the relative sizes of all the businesses. So um, we negotiated and we uh, ensured that we got the right terms more than push the number up. That was our focus. Um, we wanted to make sure we had uh, the terms of the agreement ironed out more than an extra you know, half a percent, oh, sorry, half a multiple whatever it is, you know, 0.5 multiple in addition. We yeah. really wanted to make sure we got uh, the right terms, the right proportion of cash, the right um, uh, 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 kind of warranties and things like that secured. Um, so that's what we focused our negotiation on. Um, but we, we negotiated with all parties right up until we could see we were about to go into kind of really serious due diligence with an intent to buy. And we knew that the, you know, ship it business and bore, they're sophisticated, they our very experienced board would not green light um, due diligence uh, or the expense that they were looking at in due diligence um, if they weren't serious about the acquisition. We ran a risk there. Um, and, you know, if, if they hadn't, we didn't know that we could go back to the other parties and get the same terms again. Um, but, but that was the decision we made. We also knew that uh, it was expensive on our end to run due diligence and running it three times in parallel was going to be costly. Yeah. And were you able to negotiate put options or the rights effectively to sell the equity that you rolled at some point in the future, giving yourself some assurance that that was going to be liquid no matter what? Like, Do, do you know what I'm getting yeah. at? Yeah. So, so we've got, um, I think, uh, reasonable concessions on our ability to sell. I think it, what's in there is fair and, and allows some level of liquidity. Um, you know, we're not rushing to sell right now. Um, but uh, should we choose to, we've, we've got a path that we're comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So that's great. So you're not totally at the whim of what the ship at board decides to do or not do. There's some, yeah. well, I mean, the, the end value is totally dependent on them, but we trust them. We trust them. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, this has been great. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I, are you up for a quick lightning round before I get, let you go? A quick answer to a, a couple of questions would be amazing if you're good, if you're good with that. Yeah, I love that. Happy to. Awesome. What was the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to play on you in the process of selling your company? Look, we had, um, uh, uh, we had one player and it's not who we went with, but, um, one player that uh, offered me personally a really uh, uh, fantastic role um, in the, the new organization, um, but we're offering something that wasn't fair for shareholders. And you know, that, was, that was pretty pretty gross. Um, it was disappointing to see, and straight away we knew they were not the partner for us. What was the biggest mistake you made personally in the process of selling your company? I think the complexity of the legal process was far greater than I expected. Making sure that all shareholders were on board um, and comfortable and communicated with really effectively, um, that ended up being much harder than I expected. And 
And that's probably where I spend the most uh, additional time in the process. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the process of selling your company? Oh, that, that one's easy. Um, we were trying to get the deal wrapped up by Christmas and there was a day we realized we weren't going to make it. Um, and uh, Australian business uh, shuts down for at least three weeks from Christmas, normally about four. Uh, so we knew that the deal that was about to be a week away was actually a, a month and a half away. And it was the same time the world's markets were, were, were starting to crack a little bit. So um, that, was, that was a rough Christmas, but we got there. What was the highest point you reached emotionally during the process? Um, it was actually fairly recently. Um, you know, I think the, uh, uh, the team, as much as we try to bring them on the journey, this was a hard process for them. And it was a big identity shift um, and it meant a lot of things for people individually. And we had a couple people who were really, you know, not on board. Um, and I've, you know, just in the last uh, couple months had conversations with them and uh, heard them talk about things they're excited about for, you know, the year ahead with Ship It. Um, and just that felt amazing. That felt great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, as you prepared to go through this process, was there anything that you, a resource that you turned to, again, a book, here I'm thinking more on the mechanics of negotiation or you know, how to successfully do an M&A transaction. Was there anything that you turned to, a course, a speaker, anything that you can turn our, our listeners to that would be helpful? Um, so, I mean, I, I love the getting past no and um, uh, uh, you know, that series of, of books that are fantastic. Um, but we had a fantastic, uh, lawyer who had been through this process hundreds of times. And, um, so that's Carter Newell. Um, we also had our, our, um, our firm Carter Scanlon, who we've been using for years and, um, had also advised in the process, but between the two of them, um, they really steered us through the process. So finding a lawyer that has done this before, I think that's the critical piece. Um, and that you can build trust with that, that, that stewarded us more than anything. Um, and then our, you know, Baskin Clark priest, our accounting firm, the tax partner there, um, uh, Kirsty, um, we, we spoke three times a day for six months and, yeah, uh, uh, really, uh, uh, phenomenal work, uh, uh, in supporting our business. Amazing. What did you buy yourself as a trophy? Um, I try to stay away from trophies. Um, but I did buy a uh, pair of RM William boots, uh, which okay. I don't know what those are. RM William boots. What what are they? Okay. Um, if you're not watching on YouTube, you should because Brad's showing us his boots. Okay, it's fancy. Yeah, it's an Australian. You sell your business for twenty million dollars. You buy yourself a pair of leather boots. Exactly. <laughs> they'll last forever. They'll replace. Uh, uh, yeah, they'll re um, resole it for you. Um, no, I love them. So that's what I went out and bought. Um, trying to, trying to, you know, trying to uh, 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 play it cool for now. Awesome. Awesome. I, I'd be remiss to let you, not let you go before I asked you, before we hit record, you said 
in the beginning, when we ran the business, there were always things that we looked at KPIs and arguments we'd had that we thought were going to be really important. And then when we actually got into the negotiation, it really just came down to a couple of things. What was the difference between what you thought was important and what was actually important when it came to the sale of your company? Yeah, uh, no one in the sales process talks about the color of the logo. Um, you know, no one in the process um, talks about what the right snacks in the, um, uh, uh, you know, in the, the, the snack drawer are. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are, is a tremendous amount of work you can spend on trying to optimize bits of the business because you live in it that do not mean anything to um, someone looking to acquire. Now, a happy team and an engaged team, and we had an employee NPS score above 70, that mattered. And so anything we did that boosted that, that mattered. Um, But the little things and the the particulars of how a travel policy worked and things like that, which you can spend a lot of time on, they don't matter in a sale. Um, The numbers matter. And your, your happy customers, your happy staff matter. That, 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 that's what you should spend your time on. And that, that was my learning. I think we did enough of it, but there were a lot of things that felt silly in hindsight um, when, we, when we actually put the due diligence sheets together and, and realized what wasn't being asked, uh, uh, asked about in, in that context. Super helpful. Brad, if people want to reach out to you uh, on social media or, or you're a LinkedIn guy, what's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, I'm, I'm Brad Lodge on uh, LinkedIn and I'm brad at lodge.com.au and uh, reach out. I'd love to uh, hear from anyone, especially if you've got a not-for-profit that could benefit from premonition system. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome finish off where we started this whole conversation. We'll put all of uh, Brad's contact information in the show notes. Then you can find that at builttosell.com. Brad, thank you for doing this. Hey, John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And there you have it for today's podcast between Brad and John. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. A quick reminder that you can actually watch these full episodes over at our YouTube channel, which is at built to sell radio. For show notes, including links to everything referenced, including the article I referred to at the beginning of the episode, you can head over to the show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. There you're going to find everything referenced to today's episode, including definitions for some of the more technical terms that were referenced. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, like Brad, you can actually nominate them. Some of our best guests have been nominations from listeners just like you. So you can head over to builttocell.com slash nominate, where there you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or how to learn to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. We'll talk to you again next week. 